the ending of the fucking Duffy article, she says, this is where I really thought it was a joke. I really thought it was a joke article. She says, what I'd like to do is create anthologies for other school subjects, for history, for geography, for maths. I think poetry can help children deal with the other subjects on the curriculum by enabling them to see a subject in a new way. So you'd have a maths lesson and the teacher would hand out a poem about mathematics. What? Jesus Christ. I mean, it's so contemptuous of both both of poetry and of mathematics. Like, I, I'm, right. I was baffled by this. The only end result that I can see of that, if that ever took place, which I'm pretty glad that I don't think it did, is that both subjects will be debased in the process. Right. No. You, I mean, you couldn't come away from that experience wanting to have anything to do with either of them. This is such a, I think it's such a clear example of a overreaching good-natured populist failure. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets, Thank you all for listening. Uh, there are some, some of you are new. We had some new listeners joining lately, so welcome to you all. I'm glad to have you, and please do tell a friend. Let, uh, let people know about the show if you think they might like it. I am grateful. So this week I have a, a big, juicy, gossipy uh, story of British poetry controversy that was really brought to me, sort of gift-wrapped, by our very own Cameron Clark, uh, all the way from Oxford. So I actually got Cameron on the line to talk about it, and he did a he did a great job, sort of guiding us through this uh, this big poetry dust up from the the end, tail end of 2011. We talk about Jeffrey Hill, we talk about Carolyn Duffy, we talk about Lem Sisse, among a number of other things, including reading poetry by way of Braille. So it's a, it's a, it's a, this is a marathon conversation, but I think it's a pretty engrossing one. I hope you will enjoy it. Let's get to that right now. So this concerns um, some, some words that were exchanged at a distance between Carol Ann Duffy and Jeffrey Hill uh, a little over 10 years ago. Do you want to give a brief introduction to, to who these people are for anybody who might not be familiar? Yeah, of course. Um, I've, I don't know if I'd say exchange. Well, obviously they, they didn't communicate with each other and I don't know. Right. If, I don't even know if Duffy ever acknowledged what Hill said about her, but yes, I've, yeah, they, yeah. They he he, about he had words talk- for her. She didn't, she yeah. never addressed him. Yeah. Jeffrey Hill the, was the Oxford poetry professor yeah. and Carolyn Duffy was the poet laureate of the UK or of, cause yeah. I know there's separate poet laureates for like Scotland and Wales. Yeah. Scotland has makers. I want to say UK, but it may have been England. So okay. I'm not too sure on that. But it's, it's the big one. It's the one that uh, yeah. Ten- yeah. Tennyson was, you know, among other people. So, yeah. so what is for, for people who might not know, what is the difference between those offices? Okay, so it's it's an interesting difference. So, professor of poetry is a job at Oxford where they're voted in by a process of I think 
uh, people who have so uh, Oxford graduates, Oxford alumni, vote in sort of applicants that go up and say, I want to be the next professor of poetry and the Oxford alumni vote them in. And what normally happens is from what from what I've gleaned of looking over the elections is that normally the most famous or the most prestigious or the most interesting applicant gets voted in. So right. you'll get sort of very famous poets. Yeah, what, what in like in politics would be um, called like name recognition kind of is yeah, decisive. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. And the, the position doesn't entail much. It inte- you have to perform, I think, I can't remember the exact number. It may be 10 or 12 around that. I think it's three a year for however many years. Yeah, three a year for about four years, I think, yeah. In line with the Oxford terms, Trinity, Michaelmas, and Hillary. Uh, The lectures can be on poetry, but apart from that, the the lecturer has a vast choice. Um, I think in recent years, the the lecturers have also sort of been interesting rates of doing poetry events around the city of Oxford, probably in the name of accessibility and getting a lot of poets and a lot of different styles together. But that that isn't a set rule. That's just a choice they've made. And I, I don't think Hill did that very characteristically of Hill. <laughs> right. Yeah, it would be a little surprising if he had. Yeah. <laughs> supplied his own word fest to the... To the to <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, oh, so, yeah, which we'll get, we'll get, boy, that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, cool. bracing. Um, so then, so then, uh, what about the poet laureate, or what does this mean? The poet laureate is a much more involving job. See, I always thought that as a poet laureate in England, you had to write poems for sort of major occasions. So, uh, royal. That, I know that used to be the case. I don't know if it yeah. has when that apparently stopped. Apparently, it, it isn't the case anymore. Ah, okay. Apparently, they're just they they don't have to do that, but. I get the feeling that they're encouraged to do that because the amount of royal poems that still come out is quite amazing, really. I, Duffy wrote a lot of poems for different occasions. I think Art, Simon Armitage, who is the new um, poet laureate currently, and who was professor of poetry after Hill. Yeah, um, I'm actually reading did, his lectures right now that he gave. Yeah. yeah. Um, what were the lectures called again? I I read them a few months ago. Uh, a a vertical oh, arc. Is what they're, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. They're interesting. I don't know if I agree with them, but they're interesting. Um, yeah, so the Poet Laureate is a more engaging, more public role. Can I say something subjective and opinionated about <laughs> Yeah, yeah, please, please, no, please. I, as a terrible poet, if I, if I was ever asked to um, do either, I would go straight for the Professor of Poetry and never be a Poet Laureate, because I think, I don't, I wouldn't call it saying, I think it'd be too extreme to saying you're setting yourself out. Or like you're selling yourself, but there is a. I really don't see the advantage of it beyond fame, because right. there's there is a. I think there's a sickness. There's a, there's like a uh, a term people talk about in the um, um I've seen talked about in English media about sort of the disease of the poet laureateship and no poet once they become the poet laureate has ever written good poems. Uh, Wordsworth Wordsworth was the poet laureate and. I, we don't remember Wordsworth for any of the poems he wrote then. He was sort of, I think yeah. he was quite old. Um, Tennyson is a slight, um, a case that, you know, the, the the case that doesn't follow the rule that proves the rule in a way, yeah. because it's uh, because we sort of realize his difference. But I mean, Cowan Duffy could write some egregious poems, you know, in my opinion, obviously. But some <laughs> I think he was in the yeah. role. She wrote, um, wrote a poem about, I forgot his first name. Uh, Beckham was his, you know, the Beckhams. 
Uh, oh, D- David Beckham, did Victoria yeah, Beckham. Yeah, David like Beckham. The, okay. The, she wrote about David or... Beckham. Yeah, she wrote poem about David Beckham, comparing comparing him to Achilles. Yeah, I mean, it depends on. He was very, he's very, uh, especially in his prime, was a very very handsome man. So in that, you know, very physically impressive. So maybe that's yeah. I think Jeffrey Hill would come forward and go. This is a case of sort of platonic. Uh, what's oh, Ol- oligarchic commodification? Yeah, oligarchic Yeah, like he's comparing. David Becker's achievements as sort of a, a great Greek hero. I think Jeffrey Hill <laughs> morally disgusted by sort of the implications of the comparison. Yeah, there's the. I, it was a, a magisterial contempt that he displayed in that lecture. We'll we'll, we'll get we'll get to that in a minute. So uh, I I have not spent a lot of time with either of these poets. I am a little. I mean, it seems like so when this all happened, this was in fall of 2011. And then uh, it was it was followed up a little later by uh, another a couple of other pieces we'll talk about. But in, uh, in that time, Caroline Duffy was the poet laureate. Jeffrey Hill was the Oxford right. professor of poetry, and in some ways, they seem to exemplify their respective offices. You know, Hill was supremely erudite and, as a and Andrew Malenko says, uh, obscurantist, and Caroline Duffy was as. As just about everybody characterizes her as, as a, a, a highly democratic, very interested in popularizing poetry. I think that's that's pretty pretty fair, objective characterization of her. Yeah, I think I think that's quite fair. I might I could probably argue slightly with obscurantists, but I don't think there's any point. And yes, he is. He he always pretty obscure. And Duffy is very Duffy. You know, to a great benefit. I think I think he'll understands that or admits that that Duffy is interested her interest in making poetry popular is a good thing I just think Hill is very against her method so we'll 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 get into all of it in a second but from the outset I totally enjoyed this lecture Hill gave in which he I mean he is pretty mercilessly disdainful of 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 Carolyn Duffy like as a as a poet, as a person, as a thinker, as a lar—I mean, he's he—he he is brutal. But but I will say that like I am—I enjoyed every moment of it. And I, as with my favorite criticism, I I took great relish in this sort of perfect embodiment of a particular critical perspective, without it agreeing with with you know many of the things he said, and without even feeling that he was proposing this be the only way one criticized that it seemed as if he was sort of he was he was a perfect example of a kind of approach to poetry that was you know fascinating to to listen to and uh really you know had pretty persuasive and then carolyn duffy is this other approach you know in a way i would have loved to hear her take up some of his arguments and contest them but I think, yeah, I think at least based on the interview with her that started this whole controversy, I think I think the the approach she has to poetry probably could find a better representative in someone else. Insofar as it's a legitimate approach to to poetry, it, she doesn't seem like the the best equipped uh, defender of that position. So when you say a better sort of a better person for that role would you be talking as a better poet or someone who can articulate more complex sort of ideas around that popularization of poetry i mean i think i would take either but i mostly mean the latter right like Uh even just even setting aside the quality of the work because hill you know it's like it's not like we spend a lot of time with hill's poetry in the in the course of this 
discussion. I mean, Malenko does do a decent treatment of a poem of his later, but most of this is about uh, making a case for a certain way of approaching poetry. And right. yeah. she, I mean, I'll, so so in, in uh, September of 2011, Joanna Moorhead published this sort of interview in The Guardian, the titled Carol Ann Duffy, colon, poems are a form of texting. And I mean, I have to say, it reads like an Onion article. You, do you have an equivalent to the Onion in in the UK? I don't. I do not think we do. Is the Onion? I remember it vaguely from your podcast when you mentioned it talking about nine eleven culprits being tortured in hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a sati- it's a satirical newspaper. So like mostly what they write is headlines. My my favorite Onion headline being existentialist firefighter delays four deaths. Right. It's, right. So, I mean, it, it's a, it, it mocks newspapers as well as lots of other things. And this to me read almost like an onion article about an imaginary poet laureate. It's so, yeah. it's so comical and so dumb. Yeah. Yeah. But so stereotypical of sort of the, of that sort of popularist, the popularizing urge in the poet laureate, right? It's, oh yeah. I mean, yeah. and it's, and she's so, um, ineloquent i mean shockingly so at times she says yeah if you look at rapping for example a band like arctic monkeys uses lyrics in a poetic way and using words in an inventive way is at the heart of youth culture in every way i mean it's just terrible it's just staggeringly clumsy like and the funniest thing is that she says if you look at rapping and who mentions a pop band who aren't (laughs) right it's not like are they is that a rap band i mean it's it, but yeah, so so the central claim she makes that that uh, Hill take you know most takes issue with is this claim that the poem is a form of texting, text text messaging, like in a phone. It's the original text. She says it's a it's a perfecting of feeling and language. It's a way of saying more with less, just as texting is. We've got to realize that the Facebook generation is the future, and oddly enough, poetry is the perfect form for them. Uh, it's a kind of time, it's a kind of time capsule that allows feelings and ideas to travel big distances in a very condensed form. Go, she goes on. There's some um, the woman uh, Joanna Moore had quotes from a not dazzling poem of Duffy's, and then they oh, close with with what? Sorry, go I ahead. Just, I was going to ask you a question about that poem, but we can we can get to that in a minute. Yeah, because because Hill does take that up in his lecture. Um, yeah. And then yeah. and then ju- I'm just curious because you were. Uh, a kid when this came out so you were probably a little young for some of this but you were in some ways like you were kind of the target of some of these efforts yeah i'm i was rereading the article today and thinking i am a member of this generation she talks about and i am a person maybe she'd envisions as sort of learning from texting to make learning from (laughs) pressed out of texting to make good poems and i i can categorically tell you now i have i have not i mean i've after i (laughs) thought about this four months ago i sort of went away and thought can i should i like pay attention more to my instagram messages and try and foster some (laughs) great poem out of it but (laughs) the the answer is obviously no because i i think as hill says so gracefully texting is truncation and poetry is compression and i have some questions about that but yeah he's he is he is really unhappy with this with this comparison that she makes. Um, just really quickly because it's sorry, go, unhappy in general. Yeah, he's he's. I mean, he is he is uh, deliciously cranky throughout. Uh, it's really really a, a pleasure to listen. Uh, so, th- and this is this is a lecture he gave that, that I, uh, I I I only saw the the version you sent me, which is an audio recording, but it really is. I mean, I really can't recommend the audio recording enough. So please do. I hope people will listen to that. 
I'll, I'll include links. Oh, yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I've been trying to recommend all these lectures for people for years now because I I stumbled on when on them when I was fourteen and I'd encountered oh, yeah. nothing like that in sort of in the poetry media I'd listened to. Sort of the the almost comedic brilliance and the grumpiness and you, you, even when he was demo, even when he demolishes poets and he demo, like through the through all the lectures I think he he takes apart uh, Larkin quite brutally ah, he, has, okay. he, hasn't got a lot of, he hasn't got a lot of good things to say about Sylvia Plath at the end of this one no um, no he, he's, he doesn't yeah. totally dismiss her but he's pretty no, pretty no. harsh yeah he doesn't to be fair he doesn't totally dismiss anyone like not right I think when we get on to Lem Sassay's comments about his treatment of Duffy I mean he doesn't totally dismiss dismiss Duffy either but he is but that's all the the brilliance of it that he doesn't dismiss everyone but he has a brilliant critical ability to take to render a poet down a few pegs. Yeah, I, I pulled a bunch of quotes from it. I'll, I'll share some during this recording, but I mean, it is just this one lecture. And I think he did like 12 or more. It's yeah. it's so dense with uh, just, I mean, it's just so funny. It's so smart and funny and so so rich a, a, a demonstration of a kind of character that's clearly like partly invented, but it's, I mean, it's so such a, such a real pleasure. I mean, if you, if you listen to a podcast as dumb as this, you should definitely take some time to, to listen to, to some of these recordings because they're so good. Just before we get to that though, um, because the, it was, there's this weird note at the end of this article about a competition that Duffy uh, set up during her time as poet laureate. It's called the anthologized competition. And the, the, the program involves getting kids to compile anthologies for the, themselves and then to submit their anthologies along with a budget to, I think it was Penguin and then Penguin would end up publishing them. Uh, that strikes me as, as a just an obviously terrible idea. Like if there's anything you would want kids to do with poetry, it wouldn't be anthologized because the whole point of anthologies is to bring in stuff you haven't seen before. Like publish this 14 year old Spotify list of poems that they right. only know probably because they've encountered at school because most 14 year olds don't go away and Google more poems. I mean, I did, but I can tell you from my experience when I tried to talk to other cast members, I don't think anyone else did. <laughs> Hey, hey, I found this new poem last night on Google. It wasn't a great icebreaker for you in middle school. <laughs> no, I no, that's not how my any friendship group I was ever involved in developed. So I'm curious because you referred to Duffy in, in one of our email exchanges as uh, in, you said you, you think of her as the DCSE poet. And we, we yeah. have, so in the US we have PSATs and ACTs and SATs, but so GCSEs and A-levels are two big like secondary school tests that y'all take? Right, yeah. So they're, they're the big um, events of a teenager's education before before they move on to set to, um, university or go to get a job. So GCSEs occur when one is about 15 or 16 and A-levels occur when one is about 17 or 18. And, and um, how, yeah. what did you mean when you said that Caroline Duffy was the GCSE poet? So what I meant by that is that when you do GCSE classes, which starts from about 12, and you study an anthology of poems that you'll eventually be tested on, Karen Duffy occurs throughout all the anthologies that 
are given to students. So there's different exam boards and with different anthologies, and there's some anthologies on war and some anthologies on love. But Caran Duffy is sort of the go-to English 21st century, late 20th century poet whose poems appear uh, on these anthologies and are given to students. And I think that's mainly because, one, she writes about many common themes and also themes that I think uh, teachers and academics think that students like that students can relate to. Um, she has, I think, I, did I tell you about the poem that she has that sort of attempts to ventriloquize the voices of a class of students? And it's terrible because it comes off as utterly inhuman and just caricature. It's just a load of caricatures. There's a voice Oof. of sort of the, the, um, the extreme right wing, lower working class sort of knucklehead and the voice of the uh, Asian student. And it's, it's, oh, it's embarrassing to read now. But yeah, it's that, that, that sort of how uh, teachers think that students relate to these poems. And they're also, the language isn't very complex. Like it's nowhere near Hill's sort of obscurantist, dense. Oh yeah, I mean the, the language in the poems that were quoted uh, yeah. in in the Guardian article, the little excerpt um, uh, Moorhead mentions, when one of her English teachers died, Duffy wrote a poem containing the lines, you sat on your desk, swinging your legs, reading a poem by Yeats to the bored girls, except my heart stumbled and blushed as it fell in love with the words and I saw the tree and the scratched old desk under my hands, heard the bird in the oak outside scribble itself on the air. Yeah, yeah which... So I, was, I was gonna ask you, as like, the, as, a, as a, a reader, I don't know, if, are you a reader or an editor for a magazine? I, I don't know. I, I, I yeah, I am in, uh, to no great uh, glory or a, a accomplishment, but yeah. If you fish that poem out of the slush pile. I mean, the, the honest answer is I would, if that were it, if there was nothing else there, I would confirm whether she was a, a friend of anyone on the magazine. And then depending on that fact, I would write either a uh, a form or a, a like a notably kind rejection letter. And that's mm -hmm. it. And that's really it. It's, it's, it's certainly like I've read worse stuff, but it's, yeah. I mean, it's quite bland, sentimental, and it doesn't nothing of note happens in the language or in the sound or in the thought or really anywhere. It just seems like, okay, fine. I, yeah, I think that's a perfect summing up of her. I'm not going to say her entire, because that's too cruel, but a large amount of her oeuvre. It's very competent. She's a very competent writer, but she never rises above competency into sort yeah. of, there's no sort of strangeness or intense uh intense inventiveness that takes hold that I, I look for in sort of the poets that I really admire, as in Hill or in many others. There's yeah. just a sort of very competent ability to make common, not exactly cliched, but at least common metaphors and similes out of language. But yeah, and I think I because that competence isn't extremely... Uh, difficult or doesn't make too many demands on the reader. That's probably another reason why she's given why she's given to students. My heart goes out to her a little bit. Uh, there's also a note in this article was the what sounds to me like one of the dumbest poetry controversies I've ever heard of. And I mean, I have to give your uh, your countrymen some grief here because it says in 2008. 
Her Education for Leisure, this is a, a, a Duffy poem, a poem about violence was removed from the AQA Examination Board's GCSE Poetry Anthology after a complaint about its references to knife crime and a goldfish being flushed down the toilet. Who's <laughs> pulled? Knife crime and a goldfish being flushed? I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> what? Yeah, that is, that was, that is very, very sad. Whoever, it's, it's, I find more sad that the people who received the complaints acted on them. Right, 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 yeah. I mean, I fear, I fear for them when they read Thomas Gray's poem. I mean, about a, about a gold, a, a cat drowning in a goldfish bowl. I mean, or, like, let alone like any poem about, say, the Holocaust or like, in, like any kind, like a little yeah. bit of knife crime is enough to just that's you know, just shut it all down. We have at least one slight uh, contestant with sort of the um, what is the deep and many sort of deep southern schools in America that routinely like ban so many books of their oh, reading. God. I mean, though, though typically I'll say what tends to to make us shit our pants is any kind of reference to sex or especially non heterosex. But yeah, I mean, we're, yeah. we're we have a we have an enormous tolerance for knife crime in our, in our poetry. <laughs> so on uh, November 29th, that same year in 2011, Jeffrey Hill, Oxford professor of poetry, gave a lecture called Poetry, Policing and Public Order. And I think it looks like he gave another lecture with the same title after that, but um, I, that one I didn't have access to. That is a big, I, that is a big tragedy in my listening to Hill because I've never found that lecture anywhere. It's, uh, it's unavailable. There's another lecture there that's unavailable, but I have found that's on YouTube, mm. which is great, which is called Fields of Force. But um, okay. this lecture, this public poetry policing and public order too, is nowhere to be seen. I'm so sad. I want to know which poets Hill sort of demolishes in that one. Because yeah, I mean, good lord, because uh, well, I mean, you think like, why wouldn't somebody have made a book out of these lectures, if nothing else, yes. right? Yeah, that is very true. I have wondered that. Why? Why did Hill not publish these lectures? Because yeah. he lived a little bit longer. I mean, there's a. It's not a joke, but there's a common statement that Hill was killed by Brexit. Which is <laughs> oh, <come on. laughs> I think I, I, in some ways I do, I think it is slightly good that Hill isn't around today because as much as I'd love for Hill to publish 10 more collections of poems, I also think he probably couldn't stand the sort of political landscape that we've gone through in the last few years. Yeah, he's, very, he's quite, very disgruntled. I mean, he is quite cranky uh, in this. Yeah. And, and I'll also say like the, I, I read a little bit, but it looks like in August of that year, there were some riots in response to a police killing of a young man in yeah, i wasn't sure what part of the country Everett. so what do you know the details of this yes i it was in london i i i don't want to say the exact um place in london because i'll probably get it wrong and it might right. it might have been in brixton um yeah so the the no it's not brixton. i can't remember the riots in london after the shooting of mark duggan mark duggan was Gen, I think he was generally believed to be an affiliate with a gang okay. or part of a gang. And the police shot him when he was unarmed. He wasn't doing anything threatening. I think he was trying to flee from police and they shot him. And a oh. gun was found later at the crime scene, but it was very far away from Duggan's body. Hmm. So there is a vast amount of controversy, whether he actually had a gun or what, what took place. Anyway, yeah, there was then a vast series of riots. 
I can't I I don't really have much memory of it um now because I think I think I was on holiday when it happened and I was really too young to know right you were also yeah, a kid yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, it, but it is sort of a big a big cultural mark in sort of um in sort of English culture right now there's okay. a lot of po- there's um Caleb Femi who's a he's not a brilliant poet but he's a very talented and a very good poet um has a few good poems on it but yeah okay. it's very strong in English circles yeah but so he'll talks about that for a little and he compares it to the 18th century uh riots i think he can he contextualizes greatly and i that's one of the things i really like about hill because i i really admire sort of the vast historical landscape he can sort of project onto the events of the modern day and he can i sort of think of sort of the wiseman gyre of history and sort of hill peers through it and yeah he said he says that i I, she sees um I think he talks about the riots not being very, being quite ordinary in sort of the context of riots. And um, he sort of launches off into a discussion of justice, which is kind yeah. of related to Buffy and kind of not. But yeah, that's sort of the, that's sort of the backstory behind the riots he mentions. Yeah, the, that and the title made, it made me think it, it, I mean, it may be just because I don't have enough context and I don't have the, the perspective that one might have coming from England, but it, it felt a little bit to me like a, a non sequitur. Like it, you sort of, there was a little mention of this and then we really moved into this other argument about about a sort of a democratic versus a, uh, a an aristocratic or, or elitist in a, and it, he's very particular about defining elitist, but but these two, two different approaches to poetry. He, he takes up Duffy's interview and uh, he, he says, the, the, um, he quotes her saying, the poem is the literary form of the 21st century. It's able to connect young people in a deep way to language. It's language as play. He says, with the last four words, I am in entire agreement. <laughs> it's just a withering uh, uh, restraint. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like a brilliant example of foreshadowing. Also, <laughs> yeah. I, also kind of reminded me of the, um, Amit, is, I don't know. I don't know how to say his name, but Amit Mamadas article in the uh, oh, I don't know how to say his name either. Amit Majmadar is how I think of it. Uh, I'm actually, yeah. I'm actually going to be talking to him this week. Um, oh. But yeah, sorry, go, go ahead. What you were going to say? His article in the uh, LA Review of Books about poetry as play, mm-hmm. and I think, yeah, I think Jeffrey Hill would agree with most of that, and I, I, I agree with most of it. Yeah, and yeah, I think, yeah. yeah, I think, I think everyone sort of, I think everyone comes together there that play and inventiveness. But it's, yeah. it's just, a, it's just like a shame that. Duffy doesn't demonstrate any of any play and inventiveness really in most of her. No, right. I mean, where's like, right. Like that, that's true. I mean, I hadn't thought about that, but that's quite true. Like if he seems to agree with the claim that languages play more than she does, even though it's her claim, uh, he does. I have to include here um, because the other night in a a conversation I recorded with Alice, we mentioned the, the famous and famously bad poet, William McGonagall. And he just sort of offhand uh, characterizes McGonagall so, so like brilliantly and hilariously. He says, our pleasure in the lunatic pedantic genius of William McGonagall is a case in point for him. The exigencies of rhyme urge him to reinvent the stunningly obvious so that the stunningly obvious has never before appeared with quite this intensity of solemn imbecile hubris. (laughs) It's It's so so utterly true and so precise. And yes. 
and uh, and, and it's so fair, right? He's so fair to yeah. McGonagall, saying like there, there's something here. It's not it's not total oh, yeah. garbage, you know. Uh, yeah, I think I think to not to to claim that McGonagall isn't a genius is pretty silly because McGonagall is a genius. He's a that you know I think in the stuffed owl they say that you know the the best of the very bad poetry is as hard to write as the best of a very good poetry. And I've McGonagall's work took effort, even if it was an intentional effort. And it and it is brilliantly terrible. But so he he mainly um, he 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 really takes up this um, this argument with Duffy, saying that poetry. He says, as the laureate says, poetry is condensed. Text is not con text being text messages is not condensed. It is truncated. What is more, it is normally an, an affectation of brevity. Um, so this claim, and this is one that Malenko takes up again later. Uh, is I, I think both like reasonable and I don't know that it's entirely accurate. Like how do you, so you, this was the thing I think you first mentioned in talking about this, this article was, or this, this uh, lecture was this distinction between condensation and truncation. So what does that mean to you? Um, I think it's interesting. Um, so, Truncation and condensation is I like I always I always also correct it in my mind to the compression. But yeah, so truncation I guess there's a sort of that there isn't so I'd say that in a poem there's a ratio to sort of, of sense to language. And that in a very good poem there's of normally a higher ratio of sense and or meaning. Let's say meaning, I think meaning is okay. better than sense. There's a higher ratio of meaning in a phrase or a, in a couplet or a phrase or a certain line than there is maybe of words or at least a similar amount. But I think in texting, one meaning is carried by this almost the same, if a little bit more amount of words. And also I think, I think the truncation he's referring to, he talks about um, the letter U for the word U and the letter right. two. Number two you know, for the, yeah, 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 word U. I think he's talking about sort of that un, that unrequired sort of, um, on the fly improvisational fast writing quality of that that adds no sort of aesthetic complexity or meaningful complexity but just yeah. gives off the sense that you're typing as fast as you can to get this over and done with yeah and, and it seems like part of what he's getting at too or at least part of what the, the way I think about texting in in distinction to poetry is that texting especially the kind of texting he's talking about, which is, as you said, the, the sort of the rebus texting or texting with, you know, little, what we used to call emoticons or kind of a, a parenthesis and colon or whatever, that this is, uh, part of it is also, it's a kind of a, a vulgar, uh, ready to hand vocabulary. That's not, it doesn't, it, it, it is quick and it is easy to do and it is short, but it doesn't, express more and in some cases it hardly expresses anything like i think of like vulgar language as being language that is so so familiarly in use that it almost has no scent or taste anymore it's just like yeah a, just, it's almost like filler it's bland a blandishment right yeah and there's also sort of a mathematical there's a sort of a mathematical efficiency to sort of you it for you and two for two but that efficiency isn't bolstered or backed up by any sort of linguistic or conceptual efficiency. It's just an efficient machine, uh, machine turned out uh, text 
or social yeah. media message. Yeah, there's it's it's a it's I think it's maybe kind of a lost art now because it, it there's hardly any call for it. But there was a um, people used to have uh, uh, shorthand was like a really refined practice that people that like secretaries would have. And there, I know it plays a part in Dracula because I think Harker keeps his diaries in shorthand, so Dracula can't read them. But this was I mean yeah, well, this is really what it seems like. It's just like it, it's a you need an existing language in order to have these little these little sort of cheap tricks for representing words using a smaller character but it's not really yeah. it's not actually condensing anything yeah i mean in 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 braille you get a, a sort of shorthand version of all of many words which uh, which is just um one sign so yeah there is that sort of uh way of condensing language of however condensing language to extend or enlarge or complicate meaning does braille does so I thought I assume, I thought Braille was uh, was a representation of of an alphabet. Yes, yeah, so that's grade one Braille, and then grade two Braille you get signs that just stand for a word. So, for instance, the word the, you can literally have one sign that stands for T H E. Oh, huh. It gets very complex. So is so is grade two, and when you say grade two Braille, that's like 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 uh, when you're reading a a book or something beyond like a. Uh, like a bathroom sign or like something at a higher level is that all grade two braille yeah it would probably be published in grade two it really depends on the company's viewpoint but yes grade two braille is normally what most braille is and and so is that then it's not phonetic um no i guess it isn't you so phonetic is in the world the words yeah so it's not no like no. there's no representation of the little sounds that make up the word in the no not really there wow. obviously no there are not short forms we call them short forms in grade two there are not short forms of every word but right. there's enough that they will appear at least once or twice in almost every single sentence right because braille like braille books can only be printed on one side is that right uh, like it so there's just like it's, uh, it takes up more space I, yeah i once i've I don't read much Braille books anymore, but I once read a Braille book that had, I think it was Watership Down. It was print, printed on both pages, on oh. both sides of the page, I think. But and let, actually, though, there might have been a blank page between it. But yes, I, I think you're right, actually, because if it was printed on both sides, I think the, bump, the bumps that appear on the other, edge, other side of the page would interfere. So, yes, I, I think you're right. Huh. So, I, it's I mean, very, it's cumbersome. Right, yeah, and so you you understand why you would want to shorten the representation of words because you you just you would end up yeah. taking up less space. And I I don't want to get us totally off track, but I'm curious if you don't read in Braille, do you? Is it mostly audio? What do you? Oh, okay. So I I do read in Braille, but I read uh, mostly on technology now. Okay, so, so what is that? On, the Braille will come up on like uh, a machine called a Braille Note, which is like a laptop. Uh, like an I, I, iPad, actually. Yeah, it's like an iPad, but it has all the uh, functionality and. Uh, so it has like little the little bumps will come up. Yeah, it has a braille for you to read them, and, the and then they'll yeah. go back down and change for the yeah. next line or whatever. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So, do you for poetry? Is poetry represented with short forms, or is it all grade one? Or. Oh no, it's all it's short forms. No, they don't. I don't think wow. anyone would be interested enough to um in poetry to make a sudden distinction like that uh, yeah no it is all short forms poetry and prose there's that no seems, distinction that seems so crazy though given the importance of sound i mean in, it, maybe it surprises me particularly because of your like your interest in in sound and poetry 
Mm. Like that, that there's not a representation of the sound in the word. I mean, huh? Yes, but I, I see what you mean. But mate, but because I read out so much, I can hear the sound anyway. So it doesn't right. it doesn't seem to matter to me too much if the words on the page are not completely spelled phonetically. Sure. And I don't know. I, I think there's a there's a kind of I mean, all all sim all phoneticism only gets you so far, especially in English when right, right, the words spelled right, yeah. different ways that you pronounce them. But yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think just my own experience reading is that I'm a very slow reader and partly it's because I have to make the sounds of all the words when I read them in my head. Mm. Um, but I also think like when I when I imagine words, there there's maybe, maybe they're just sort of separate, like separate banks of memory for me, one being the visual and one being the auditory. But, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I don't, yeah, I, hmm. I guess I guess I would equate that to the auditory and the the, the feel of the word. Yeah, the tactile. But they, they like, are, I think they're so interlinked for me that it's very hard to distinguish. I don't think I have two two different banks. Right. I I sort of have a I have a strange synesthesia as well. I can obviously I've never seen colors, but I can sort of associate colors with scents and feels and tastes. And that, right. yeah, my mind works in a very sort of synesthetic way, which is sort of my great, my great claim to fame with Rembo is that we both had synesthesia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, uh, Baudelaire too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did Baudelaire write a poem on synesthesia. I know Rembo. Isn't that Baudelaire's correspondences? Doesn't he? Rambo, Pardon? Yeah. I think isn't Baudelaire's correspondences? Isn't that about synesthesia? Part? Oh, yes, it might be. I never read I think, it. That way, I, but I yeah. never, and, and I. That's a. It's funny because I have synesthesia. Is one of those psychological experiences that I've never had any connection to. Like I don't. I mean, maybe the only way I've had a connection to it is with language, where there's that overlap. But. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's like it's always like Ryan talks a lot about. It. He's very into synesthesia, but it's I have very little access to that. But yeah, that's I. That's interesting. I, I, I it just it would make me curious about your experience of because I'm I'm always convinced that when people talk about reading, they're talking about fifteen different things and just calling it the same thing. And so uh -huh. I yeah, it makes me curious about like how you digest as you read. But um, I drag you like off course so badly here. No, no, no. I mean, it's it's, fa it's fascinating. I'm, yeah, I'm very uh, uh, curious about that. But so yeah, so uh, he says poetry is condensed text is trunk is uh, sorry, text is not condensed, it is truncated. I think I think my maybe my yeah, what are your objections to that? Yeah, my, so I, I think I I mean, I think what's true is like as Brad Lighthouser has said, you know, said in a lecture, there's a lecture actually when I where I met my wife. He said that in poetry you take the line for the mountain, and I think that's that's quite true. You know, you, you just a, a little a little image or a little suggestion will bring a whole scene, you know, into the mind. But I don't. I guess I don't think of that as condensation. I think of it as elegance. Like to me, it's not the it's not so much about the density or the compression of the work that contain like a little bit contains a lot. It's more like a little bit does a lot. But I also tend to think of poems mostly in terms of the effect they have on the reader. So, it so yeah, so I guess you're you're drawing a distinction between sort of um, ideational multiplicity and sort of and imagistic the imagistic ability of a phrase, right? So Sorry, say that, again, say that again. I need to, th so I need to when, think about let me, that. Let me, let me use an example because I, sure. I, talking in the abstract is 
very bad. Uh, so when we talk, so when Hill says, when he takes his line from uh, the mystery of the charity of Charles Peggy, which is a poem he, a poem of his that he mentions in the lecture, but only to quote a line from it, which was then quoted as an epigraph to us. <laughs> no, I mean, I was that section made me made me laugh. But yeah. That's kind of... <laughs> He, in that line, he says, um, to dispense, comma, with justice, semicolon, or to dispense with justice. So it's sort of punning on the idea of either, punning on the phrase to dispense with justice and whether yeah. that means getting rid of justice or to use justice in a proper lawful way. Right. Um, so that is probably, that is a line that I think is sort of ideationally packed. So packed with meaning as meaning a sort of concept and idea. While we could take... I don't, I can't think of any right now. Um, my mind's going to, there's Emily Dickinson does it a lot when she sort of comes up with a line that's packed with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, has a uh, of image, su success in circuit lies is one of those yeah, crammed yeah. lines. Like, yeah. That's a great, there's a fantastic line by her. I love when she's taught, she doesn't mention death. She talks about a skull. Maybe she does mention death. I can't remember. She says something that drills his welcome in. Yeah. 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 Okay. So it's the very end of a, a poem. Um, uh, uh, the possibility to pass without a moment's spell into conjecture's presence is like a face of steel that suddenly looks into ours with a metallic grin, the cordiality of death who drills his welcome in. Yeah, I mean- Cordiality of death who drills his welcome like your, in. Yeah, mm. it's a, yeah that, that is amazing. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's so image packed, right? That does so much in so many few in so few words with so many images or not even with so many images but with one image so the distinction you're drawing is between like an elegant articulation of ideas versus a an especially a, a potent and briefly expressed image is that kind of the distinction you're making or yeah yeah okay. I, yeah that's exactly the distinction I'm making. You, okay you put it more elegantly than i yeah. But yeah, so that's it. Yeah. And I think I think you can I think those both come under the idea of compression. I think Hill would probably accept both as sort of examples of what he's talking about. I'm curious because he it it again, it seemed to me as if the the whole policy, public order, policing stuff felt felt disconnected from most of the argument of the, the uh lecture. He does use this this phrase policing one's patch a number of times to talk about both what Duffy does in characterizing poetry and what he does? Uh, it's certainly kind of idiomatic speech. Um, I always think of it as sort of, I think he's, he, he really wants to make clear that he's got working class, he has working class origins. Right, yeah. he says both, both of them seem to grow up yeah. poor and without, yeah. without a lot of education around them. And he wants to, and he sort of thinks that Duffy has gone down this route of make, um, encouraging that everyone else from poor or not even poor backgrounds or many different backgrounds will love poetry and fall in love with poetry and she wants to popularize it. And she's sort of policing her justly democratic patch in that way while he's, uh, he's police, he's, he's trying to, uh, amplify his own view that we should uh, look at complexity of poetry and not take any old poem to heart. Um, but please, I've never thought about it too critically, I will yeah. say. I've I mean, it may, it may not, it may not matter. I just, I, I, every time I hear it, I, I think it just seems like an odd 
an odd inclusion it's, of a thought. I think it's certainly idiomatic in England. So maybe okay. quickly on the question of class, because he does he doesn't as you say, he uh -huh. makes that point quite quite uh strongly that he's not he he's a little bit contemptuous in adopting the phrase, but he he, he calls himself and Duffy both children of the underprivileged with a little bit of a a wink uh to it. Um so I'm curious, just this is a super super English point of uh distinction that I, I don't you, you can tell me how much it matters i know that like in the us the, like we have a lot of accents over here but we don't they don't seem to be quite as strictly loaded with meaning as accents in in the uk like there, there seems like there's sort of like four there's like newscaster nobody accent and then there's like a very pronounced midwestern accent which we tend to associate with like a wholesome naivete and then like a very, a very uh, uh, pronounced um, like uh, outer borough New York accent that we associate with like a, a no nonsense pragmatism. And then, and then like a rural Southern accent is just everybody's shorthand for, for like uh, total ignorance and uh, provincialism. So yeah, outside heavy. of that, like what we don't, it doesn't, they're not as strictly, uh, they don't, they don't, the, the, their meanings are not as fixed as they seem to be in the UK. Is, is there a, to my ear, he speaks with a, with an almost exaggerated, uh, uh, RP, like Rada, uh, right, yeah. posh accent. Is that, is, am I hearing, like, I'm assuming this would have been, as with Patrick Stewart, who, who like grew up with a very different way of speaking than he uses today, is this is is there a meaning to this, or is there not? Is like, am I hearing anything meaningful there? There's probably certainly a meaning. I I doubt that was the accent he was born with, and he he grew up probably in a time when that when if you wanted to enunciate and speak clearly in public, you probably had to train that out of you. Okay. I don't have any evidence to suggest that he did so, but I'm just going by supposition. I think right now we're sort of witnessing the death of that accent. I know one's, there's a big pushback against people correcting sort of their native accent or the, the accent they were born with. So, so people from the north, people from sort of the north of England who then come to speak on the news and people from sort of inner city London who have a sort of a kind of cockney accent, there's right. a big push on those people not to be sort of forcibly changed to a more acceptable uh rp southern accent okay so we're sort of witnessing the death of that but i think back in sort of the, the day of the 60s and the 50s and the 70s and maybe even up to the 80s and the 90s i think hill would have definitely had to attempt to standardize his accent in some way i can okay. i can hear something of a of sort of the of a kind a slight worcestershire note in his okay. voice but that's probably because I'm slightly more attuned, being an English person, to that, to the subtleties. But yeah, you you are correct that he does speak in a. He's, I I to be I, I to be fair, I do love the way he speaks. He speaks with such brilliant enunciation and such. Sort of, oh yeah. And when he reads and when he reads a poem, he speaks with sort of a grim, a grim, <laughs> violent power to it. That's I've never heard anyone read poems. <laughs> And I, I've get, I listened to a poetry reading of him reading his poems on YouTube, and I was slightly disappointed because he does—he reads a Shakespeare sonnet incredibly effectively, and like no one else on the planet, but he doesn't exactly read his poems like he reads Shakespeare sonnets, and it's a slight tragedy.
Yeah, yeah, it's it is. Uh, it, he's very funny, but it is. Yeah. I mean, the 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 gravity with which he reads, even like the, even the Carolyn Duffy lines that he approves of, is so. It is so. It, it so overburdens the language, which feels pretty thin to me, even in the better of the poems. Yeah, that it's yeah. It feels like only certain poems could survive that kind of enunciation. So, and just and just to clarify for for all of the uh, the ignorant Yanks and Aussies uh, listening, when you say a Southern accent in the UK, that's yeah. a that's a the, what we think of as like the the Queen's English Southern being London being fan, upper yeah. upper crusty people. Yeah, the upper class. Okay, quite London. And sort of even more deep south than that, but not yeah. Okay. Around that. And if and and if this is not an untoward question uh, for all of our untrained ears, with what accent do you speak? <laughs> I, I whoa, my accent is southern. It okay. isn't Queen. I don't, it's not RP. I I I don't think I, other people can form their own opinions. I I don't I don't really know what it is. It's sort okay. of a bastardized southern. Thing. All right, so so to get to the real fighting words that Hill um, <laughs> that Hill uh, launches at uh, Duffy, he is really he really picks some nits. Like he's very fussy about he fusses at her about or about he fusses at the Guardian about representing line breaks with slashes versus vertical lines, which I confess yeah, I, I, I was always I, taught to use slashes, so I don't even know what he's talking I, I about. I think he was wrong. I've I've never seen anyone use vertical lines that much. I've, <laughs> I, I I I don't know. I he's he's pretty clearly wrong in this instance. <laughs> but he so he he says uh, what Professor Duffy desires to do, I believe, is and if so, it is a laudable ambition, is to humanize the linguistic semantic detritus of our particular phase of oligarchical consumerism, and for the common good, she is willing to have. This is this is brutal. He says for the common good, she is willing to have quoted by the Guardian interviewer several lines from a poem by herself that could easily be mistaken for a first effort by one of the young people she wishes to encourage oh, and then he, he basically says i wouldn't have the bravery to do this and also comments that the the lack this sort of detritus language shares many similarities to sort of the detritus and cliche of mills and boone yeah oh so yeah so, so he, he goes on and i wanted to get you to to fill in some some english details here he, he goes on to right. say my first response is that this is democratic English paired to its barest being, and I would not myself have the moral courage to write so. My simultaneous incompatible response is that this is not democratic English, but cast off bits of oligarchical commodity English, such as is employed by writers for Mills and Boone and by celebrity critics appearing on A Good Read or The Andrew Mars Show. His tone, I think, is pretty unmistakable, but would you clarify for us what those references are? Okay, um, so Mills and Boone is a series of not exactly pornographic, but sort of. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I, I laughed. Sorry, not exactly pornographic. What? So sort of not exactly pornographic, but sort of soft and smutty romance, cheap romance books that are sort of turned out to give sort of people a sort of cliched sexual thrill. So what we what we to, in here might call like Harlequin romance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And then and then a good read is a is a BBC radio program. Yes, it. I think it. What it used to be. There's also. Okay. A, uh, yeah. I, yes, I think so. The Andrew Mar. Do you know? Do you know the, are you familiar with the Andrew Mar show? Uh, some kind of talk show. What? What? What species of talk show? I think he chose the Andrew Mar show. I think he'd have, he could have chosen a, a, a better example. The Andrew Mar show is a political program 
on the BBC, okay. uh, where the presenter Andrew Martin normally goes over politics, but it normally does have a section devoted to a slight part of culture, and he's probably talking about the the, the occasions when celebrities who have written autobiographies come on and are interviewed, and I think those are those are sort of the sections that the sort of the bathos sections between sort of the pathos of contemporary politics and international world affairs. My, I wonder if he chose that because that was as low as his brow got. I like, I, you know, like there may be more apt or more damning comparisons, but I, maybe he they, he didn't have access to them. Is my suspicion. He says he claims he doesn't use the internet, and um, so maybe. <laughs> right. he, yeah, he refers, yeah. I mean, he reads out the Wordfest article that I think refers to strictly comic dancing when it talks about celebrities. Um, yeah, yes, the, the, yeah. Whatever the da Dancing with the Stars or whatever British version of that. Yeah, he he is he is really uh, withering in his dismissal of the word fest. But then he also he also condemns all of the highbrow literary festivals, and he says they are. Um, he says yeah, they are the essentially reading. book fairs, though without the chance excitement of finding anything good. Yeah, <laughs> publishing jamborees that if he was. Yet he thinks Oxford should never commit themselves and should not give their prestige to. Right, right, yeah. He's 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 pretty scornful of of, uh, and he, and he says at one point with with like really audible disdain, like he wouldn't he wouldn't be surprised if it were like a top uh, Eng, uh, uh, Oxford English you know graduate who wrote this that he's he's pretty he's pretty like pretty harsh on the institution that's that's uh, hosting him. But uh, God God bless him for it. So so you you had said to me that you thought he wasn't so hard on Duffy because he does say, he does make a point of saying, or um, he quotes a single stanza from a poem she wrote called The Christmas Truce about the uh, famous uh, truce during World War One, And he, he praises her use of the verb treasured. Yeah. Uh, to describe the, the glittering rhyme on unburied sons treasured their stiff hair. The stanza itself before that isn't great. And he, Again, this is the stanza where he, his his reading voice almost crushes it to death before he can get to his praise of it, and he and he can't resist saying, "Although the words thrilled and glittering uh, are words that come with a standard poetry kit, treasured is beautifully chosen and placed." So it seems to me like he's doing the barest possible gesture of conciliation, saying like she's picked a good word now and then, despite all of her limitations. I think it's also strategically clever though, because if you're gonna if you're gonna take down a poet for their uninventive ill choice of comparison between poetry and communication method, what uh, what like what else than to pick that same poem, that same poet to illustrate your view of good poetry or your view of good poetic skill no no i mean i, I think no i think i think it is it is certainly uh, uh canny of him i just think that yeah i i think i'm gonna revise my <laughs> when i wrote an email i was probably slightly still stinging from lemsis's oh god yeah article but yeah i don't i think he's very brutal to duffy yeah and yeah you are true there he could have picked so many better contemporary poets, so many better contemporary poems to sort of give a good example of this. But the thing with when Hill talks about oligarchical uh, detritus and consumerism is that he's, his criticism is based on a very sort of complex and deep understanding of language. And uh, he, go, he, he makes, I think in that lecture, he makes reference to Joseph Goebbels and he sort of <laughs> yeah, yeah. thinks of 
I think he gets his sort of moral imperative from the idea that he thinks that dictators and m mass murderers and political war criminals like to debase and simplify language in order to take control of the masses. And yeah. he looks around that and he finds any sort of simplified poems and he says, this isn't, this is undemocratic because it's debasing language. And instead of challenging the reader and attempting to lift the reader to a more complex plane of perceiving and understanding, it simply, uh, it works to a, like the, the hopes and wishes of the lowest common denominator. So I no. think he sort of, he sees a moral imperative to go after Duffy in that way. Yes. Oh, you, no. And, and I actually think that uh, we'll I'll jump around a little bit because I want to talk about it. Uh, you, you sent all these great little, it's <laughs> a great reading packet you supplied. But so so I'll just quickly to jump. There's, um, uh, and I'll have links to all this obviously in the show notes, but a Angie Malenko, and I have no idea how to say her name. I, I, have, I have an invitation out to her. A Angie, Ange, uh, please do, please, please do come on the show and tell me how to pronounce your name. But Angie Malenko has a, a really smart guide, as, as you said, to a poem by uh, Hill called On Reading Crowds and Power. And I actually think she does quite a good job of articulating his objection to some of this demotic speech. She says, uh, accustomed as we are to celebrating the vernacular in 20th century poetry, we forget that for some modernists, the vernacular represented not the language of the street, but the homogenized language of newspapers, government spokesmen, and corporate shills. These entities who represent a small powerful elite, or in Hill's word, oligarchy, use a basic or debased language to persuade the masses to vote in a certain way, to acquiesce to authority, and to buy things. Such language, what we commonly call propaganda or advertising slogans, is not intended to foster debate, though it may feign objectivity. I think that's right on the nose. Yeah, it's so true. There's a really good example of this with an English prime minister a few years ago called David Cameron. And he was asked his favorite uh, football team, and he gave an answer. And I, I won't tell you, I won't say which, because I can't remember which football team he gave. And he was asked, and then he then commented in another interview that he supported a different football team. And this is sort of the, <laughs> I think Hill would go and say, this is sort of, this is a very minor, but good example in, ma in microcosm of how like the oligarchs are pretending to be invested in the language of, as Malenko says, the street and the common yeah. people, but actually just debasing that language and just using that language to their own personal gain. Uh, yeah, he no, I, I think that's an extreme, an extreme example with the Nazis and Joseph, Joseph Goebbels. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, so I think that I imagine it was almost like a, a tower of, of a tower of horrible debased language that peaks with Goebbels and then goes down with David Cameron and then goes down to get David Cameron <laughs> saying one foot even in the other. And they're obviously not the same, but I think they share they share a slight thread of debasement to the basement of language between them. And I think Hill would, Hill would see that and sort of yeah. make a connection. His other line on it is the cult of sincerity plays into the hands of the spivs and charlatans of our anarchical plutocracy. Just quickly, because uh, I had to look it up, spivs is not in fact a, an ethnic slur as it sounds like to an American ear. Yeah, it isn't an ethnic slur. I couldn't give you a perfect definition. I always thought of it as just like, uh, I always think of it as just a charlatan, just another word for a charlatan. Yeah, the, so the, the, at least the American Heritage uh, definition relates it to the word spiffy, um, which is uh, 1930s yeah. slang. So it's it's a it says a man typically characterized by flashy dress who makes a living by disreputable dealings. I think the idea of like people trying to get you to buy something, 
and using and get you to buy something that's not very good but making out to seem as if this thing is incredible so the, and this is this it's funny because the when i read it the line about mills and boone my assumption mm. and then i think i actually i i have a false memory of looking it up because i thought i i'd confirmed this and it turns out i'm totally wrong about it my assumption was that this that mills and boone was a famous advertising firm um which seems yeah. which seems in some ways not not in it's not in inappropriate not totally wrong. his treatment of duffy comes up again uh in this this uh, this other guardian piece that you sent me by uh lem sisse that's called uh poetic heavyweights it came out in january of 2012 and he i mean i will say like this this whole article reads like advertisingly. I mean, it all reads like these sort of brainless slogans or Hallmark card sentiments. I and mean, it's, it's one of the dumbest pieces of writing I've ever seen attributed yeah. to a poet in public. So Lem Sisse is a is a popular uh, English poet, is that or a British poet? He is quite popular. He uh, he published a few years ago an uh, uh, an autobiographical book about his, his uh, problems with adoption and how he went through the adoption system and the violence that was done to him called my name is why a lot of people like it i haven't read it but he is also a popular poet and i read how i tried to get for a book of his selected poems i think a year ago and it was it was it was it was not good it was it it really like i read a poem that really demonstrated why you needed to learn meter to write in a rhyme <laughs> um, I, was, I was reading for another book of his poems just before we are uh, taught just to get my sort of my mind in order about him to say and to be fair those poems were better but they they shared the same problem with duffy of being have, containing common metaphors that are not quite cliches but not very original either yeah. and containing common sentiment that is never ever valified uh never sort of confirmed or made interesting by inventiveness of language so yes he is a he's another common accessible poet who who doesn't seem particularly talented and probably i would say less slightly less competent than duffy so so he he is critical of hill he says uh in in talking about hill's uh lecture about uh, in part about duffy he says hill demeans himself after 350 years of male dominance Duffy is the first female poet laureate. Hill's comparison of the language of Duffy to Mills and Boone is like a man in the 1950s comparing the first female managing director to a jumped up office angel. I'm assuming office angel is like slang for a secretary. Yeah, a, yeah, secretary yeah. or, uh, yeah, even um, less so than a secretary. Something yeah, like, so. A, a female typist in a typing pool. Yeah, so I think you, your initial response was that, that you know, du that Hill does have some some you know re redeeming remarks about duffy's poetry I, I mean i think i think we've talked about like i think he is pretty hard on her but it also seems to me uh this this characterization seems totally unfair i think hill is quite hard on duffy but duffy's the fucking poet laureate like if anybody yeah. is fair game for criticism it seems it seems to me as if he is treating her with more respect by being so harsh than if he had tiptoed around her because she's a woman. I mean, that just seems incredibly right. condescending of, of Sisse. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I, yeah. I, I, Sisse, that, the enti that entire statement seems confusing and so misplaced and utterly incorrect in several places. But yes, I, but Hill gives Duffy so much critical attention right. that he's either not misogynistic or incredibly so deeply misogynistic that he <laughs> also invents 
incredibly complex literary and critical frameworks to justify it. And I don't think that's true. So yes, he there's no misogyny in this, in to what I can see in the podcast. He go he had another podcast. He compares Emily Dickinson to Alan Turing, and says oh. a poet you need a poet with the intellect, the genius level of Alan Turing, like huh. Emily Dickinson. Oh yeah, yeah. I no, I mean, yeah. The, the claim, like the the claim that you know, I mean, it seems to me like you couldn't you couldn't produce the criticism that Hill offers of Duffy if you didn't take both her and her office seriously. Right, that seems exactly. to be the only way that that happens. I mean, I disagree with plenty Hill says, but I certainly don't think he he is at all unfair uh, or at all demeans himself uh, with his with his conduct. No, not at all. No, say demeans himself by his seeming lack of understanding of history. He says. After 350 years of male dominance, what does he think that men and female poets were great be uh, before 350 years ago? Like <laughs> yeah, what was what happened 350 years ago? <laughs> like, yeah. you know. well, such a, and he doesn't even, he doesn't even say like he doesn't contextualize it within England. Like you could take his comments just about the world. We could, you know, we could <laughs> yeah. like after a few million years of male dominance. You know. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's quite true. But yeah, I mean, it is a, a a stultifying piece of piece of writing. He says, "This is this is an adult, an adult published celebrated poet publishing an adult newspaper commenting on the uh, poet laureate and the Oxford pro uh, professor of poetry." He says, "A poet is not by nature a team is by nature not a team player. There's no I in team, but then there's no you either." Poets are at the heart of revolution because revolution is the heart of the poet. I mean, this is this is really just like this could be in a fucking Hallmark card. This could be a bumper sticker. It's terrible. It's an it's an odd mass of sort of as to, yeah to quote Hill. It's an odd mass of sort of debased oligarchical consumerist speech flung flung together, and it it seems to have no understanding of tone. It, he jumps straight oh, from God. saying Jeffrey Hill is a misogynist to saying why doesn't Jeffrey Hill tweet his review of Cara and Duffy's poems on Twitter and then they can trend. And it's right. Well, I, it's so bizarre. That ending is so, yeah. Then he can upload his review via a Facebook status update, which should be synced to his tweets and hopefully it'll trend. What the fuck are you talking about? This is, I mean, <laughs> Jesus Christ, who approved this this uh, opinion piece? I, I don't, yeah, like, I, I guess I, the, I, will, I don't think The Guardian has a very good run with poet, poetry. I know there are much better publications before a poetry opinions and poems than the guardian so so the in terms of the like uh the 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 they're like strong both political and intellectual matrices along which the the british uh periodicals are are, yeah. are recognizably placed so i know like the telegraph is very is very conservative and uh -huh. the guardian is is like mainstream liberal is that accurate yeah main, basically mainstream liberal. okay but then is there like on the intellectual axis, there's like the, the, the Times and then the Times is more highbrow or what, like where do all these line up? Well, I'd say the intellectual of the access of the Guardian is quite high if you do not think of poetry, if you do not have it. <laughs> okay, yeah. And if you don't really, it's reviews are mainly a lot of buzz, buzzwords. Like I could write, I could write many good parodies of Guardian reviews of books, of poems, or of prose, and it would be fresh, exciting, innovative writing. Luminous. Yeah, yeah a lot of in, like sincere, true, heartfelt. And it, yes, they don't, it, I think it has better film reviews than it does of literature, I'm gonna say. 
Okay. But, I mean, uh, all of all of which would be pretty consistent with the the most prestigious U.S. periodicals as well, which yeah. which often have brilliant film reviews and uh, just lobotomized poetry reviews. I'd, I'd say I'd rather I think the reviews in the New Yorker as bad as they are are probably five times more intelligent than the Guardian. <laughs> the Guardian. All right, the Guardian's really scraping the, the bottom of the barrel. All right. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I strongly recommend uh, the the Hill lecture. And I want to talk a little bit more about a couple of things he mentions in there. Uh, I will include links to all this. Though, as you you had the, the experience, as did I, that Poetry Foundation links have been really fucking up lately. I've like They've really been hard, yeah. very inconsistent, uh, very difficult to keep, for me to get access to them. So yeah, God this knows is if the, big, the big poetry controversy of the week for me. What, what, what the fuck is up with the Poetry Foundation? What, what I don't know. Doing? As much as I make fun of them, it is really nice to have access to their index of of like poetry oh, yeah. essays and poems online because they do have just a ton of, i mean that's like if you're gonna get a hundred million dollars from an evil pharmaceutical company like at least give your magazine away for free online which they do and they and they, they yeah. have a lot of other poems. so that i mean their, their website is really their their greatest uh their greatest virtue so i, I hope oh, they get yeah. the shit fixed well, um, i think so when i was 13 i, I go into poetry after hearing i was reading stephen king and i heard uh Charles Rowland to the Dark Tower came by Robert Browning, read at the yeah. end of King's Dark Tower series. And I right. thought, wow, this is amazing. I, and then I went off and wrote a terrible imitation of it. But yeah, yeah, when I was branching out into poetry, well, when I was fascinated by poetry, the, yeah, the Poetry Foundation was essential for me. That's how I encountered all, mainly all the great poets of sort of the English and American tradition and many critical articles. Yeah, no, The Guardian, the uh, Poetry Foundation for all its flaws is I think probably the big, the best, or at least the most detailed poetry archive on the internet. And I mean, and not for nothing. Uh, and this is this this uh, actually, yeah, I actually am curious about how formatting affects you. But just you know, for for those who can look at it, it is it is a lot nicer to read than like so many poetry sites are published in a way that's just painful to look at. And so they do have a nice for like a nice format and it's, it's, it's easy enough on the eyes. I'm, I'm curious. So for you is, is all of that formatting, I guess like formatting and font and all that is, is that, is that essentially wiped clean or? Uh, yeah. Formatting. So font italics don't really work. Don't really appear for me or don't work for me. So okay. I have really no connection. I would say form because I, I don't, the device, so the Braille note that reproduces all of this, it doesn't working up or down. It just, it's just everything's linear. Hard, yeah, yeah, everything's okay. linear. And how does so it? How does it? How yeah, does it no, show line breaks? Uh, so line line breaks are fascinating to talk about. So it, this is I'm I'm trying to explain this simply. So the Braille note, when I'm in like a word document or when I'm typing, doesn't actually do a line break, as in the lines are placed below each other. It has a symbol for a line break. Huh. And then you just keep reading straight on. Okay. But on so it's website, like the slash or something. Yes, it's like the slash. But on a okay. website, there is that it does, the lines are below each other. Obviously, you can't see one, you can't see more than one line. You can only see one, you can only feel one line at a time because, because it isn't, because there's no sort of uh, three-dimensional space. It's just... Right. So the so the line like the the line on your computer populates with with a line and then that one goes away and the next one comes up and that's how you know it's a new line. Yes, but okay. it's so annoying that it doesn't. This doesn't happen in when I'm writing in in the Word document. This only happens on the internet. 
<laughs> it's always oh. it's always amused me because you'd think from that experience that I'd write many many prose poems because the line break doesn't affect me, but right. I've somehow got this odd, odd obsession with the line break, and I almost write no prose poems. But yeah, so that's how that's how the line break. I know that that is fascinating, and it's funny. I've I've been thinking about line breaks a lot more lately because I realized that like though one of my perennial questions about free verse poetry is how do you determine the line breaks? I realized that when it comes to to at least my own poetry, all of which at the moment is is metrically metrically regular, I uh -huh. I've come to think of the line breaks as being almost almost like they exist in the sound of the poem so much that the exactly. presentation on the on the page hardly matters and i i've taken to just because i find it's easier to get published this way i've taken to re-breaking my lines on the page so that they don't look regular ah uh, yes there's a yeah, word but, for that uh was there a word for that specifically i know the other people i know like me joshua megan and other people have done it before um, yeah, there's a word for metrical poetry that that does not break at the rhyme, but the rhyme word. Um, huh. I've forgotten. Um, Do you, I, remember when I told you like almost half, almost a year ago now about commercial poetry, that website that hates almost all contemporary poetry. And oh, very, oh, is that is that Jennifer Reeser's page or is she just on it? Oh, I can't remember. She's on it. It's run by... Some Radisphere person? It, he used to be on a Ratosphere. He isn't anymore. Okay. He's... I've, I can't remember his name. He's he was very he like think he his general thesis is that the best poems of the twentieth century of the twenty first century were all on a rate of sphere and poetry free for all wow. and the poets that all for them. And okay. that, yeah. And <laughs> uh, have you heard of M. A. Griffiths? I probably just like in passing uh, reference in one of the, like I've probably seen his name or the name come up on some of these websites, but I don't yeah, yeah I don't know. Was, she was so this very revered Aratosferian, I think she was a woman in England, and she died in 2007, quite tragically, I think, oh. of her stomach. I don't know if it was cancer. I, I need to confirm all this information. I feel like I'm giving out too much false information tonight. Right. But she died quite suddenly, and her body wasn't discovered for a few days. And the sort of Aratosphere community and the sort of broader community of poetry forums came together and actually pub got her book got a book of poems by her published called um grasshopper the poetry of m.a griffiths oh is and, that, and, and um abel muse runs that yes i think it okay. was abel muse because i think i know i, I think i've seen that abel cover muse. on their website yeah there's a small publisher in england i think published it and so commercial poetry sort of holds her up as sort of the greatest english the greatest 21st poet uh, 21st century poet and i've read for her poems and i, I thought well She's good, but I think Philip Larkin did all she's done more effectively. Right. Like I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I personally don't think she's the best twentieth, twenty-first century poet. I think, I think even sort of poets that are being published in the wider journal world and are quite famous, like Ishan Hutchinson. I, right. I, if I had to stake a claim to sort of the be the greatest right. poet alive now, I'd probably say Ishan Hutchinson. Okay. Yeah. 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 But before, yeah. So I, I want to like somewhat resolve some of these <laughs> these questions brought up with Hill. So he has this kind of big statement he makes a couple big statements he makes later in the in the lecture he says in order to do anything of worth in literature you must create not what is newsworthy or praiseworthy in the terms of the festival pundits but something that is self-contained and, and in which the stresses are right 
And he goes on to say, I'm policing my patch when I insist that any poetry written today worthy of being read for anything other than antiquarian curiosity in 50 or 100 years time will have been written with a kind of savage technical restraint somewhat akin to Swift's Latin epitaph and Yeats' translation of it mechanically and with a near perfect sense of timing. And the, the, uh, La the Yeats' translation of Swift's Latin epitaph is, Swift has sailed into his rest, savage indignation there cannot lacerate his breast, imitate him if you dare, world besotted traveler, he served human liberty. Yeah, is that, what do you think of that? Are those are those accurate claims? I mean, again, in some ways, like I, I find it easier sometimes to endorse his his tone than his claims in the by the letter. Uh, in this one, I'm not sure. You must okay. create not as not what is newsworthy or praiseworthy in the terms of the festival, but something that's self-contained in which the stresses are right. That's I guess that's kind of hard to argue with. Yeah, it's quite hard to, it's quite hard when you say this. So if you say this, look at this young poet, their poems are so relevant to our modern situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, but in 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 years when their poems aren't relevant, are there other quantity, are there other qualities of the poems that will keep them being remembered? Is there sort of a technical brilliance or an inventive linguistic brilliance? Or are right. they do they just say things that we we can sort of think about now and sort of go, oh, yes, I agree with that and move on you know There's, and then and then he's slightly more specific when he says that that anything worth being read in 100 or 50 years 50 or 100 years time uh for for poetry's sake for the sake of itself will have been written with a kind of savage technical restraint mm, um savage. i love that savage technical it's restraint. a great I, phrase i want to turn into a savage technical restraint i think you know he though he goes on i mean he or he i can't remember if it's before or after he he talks about he's very dismissive of what he calls the cult of sincerity he says you, you it's important almost not you know to abandon sincerity in writing poetry that's that's not certainly uh you shouldn't try to be yourself i think i sympathize with his impatience more than i fully approve his statement have you got any sort of disagreement with the statement that you could vocalize because i'm i'm interested in sort of seeing your disagreement with it if he had said and i, I don't have his precise phrasing of it but i think if if what he had said was those who claim that you must be sincere and you must be yourself when writing though they are wrong to claim that i think i, I would entirely agree with that claim like yeah. no it's ridiculous to say you must be yourself or you must be sincere when writing poetry but to say you he seems i mean again i don't have the precise but he seems almost to say don't be yourself and don't be sincere yeah i mean well let me put it this way like depending on what his claim is like if, if his claim is only that that you know one needn't be these things then like fine of course yes i totally agree go ahead this is a, a superlative force to it that makes it seem as him as if he's saying don't be often never write sincere poems i think what lies underneath it is sort of him saying being sincere and being yourself should be the last of your worries you should apply yourself to saying the thing you want to say with the words in the best order with the best technique you can muster and yeah. whether that that whether that thing is about yourself or about aliens on mars or about dogs or about uh, racism in, in America or whatever. Sure. The subject is almost the least important thing. 
when you've got the the playful inventiveness this and i mean play not as in unseriousness but as in inventiveness right. and sort of linguistic charge i think that is he he wants poets to place that at the top of sort of the sheet of things they need to go over to make a poem i think he wants sincerity to be at the very bottom yeah I, and, and and i think like i'm definitely with him in in suspecting that like when distinguishing between you know the good and as Stephen Dunn would say the not so good the difference yeah. seldom if ever lies in the degree of sincerity <laughs> or the degree of like trueness to self that, that that's almost never what makes the difference between good and bad or good and, and better uh but I do think I mean I think of I guess part of it is that right now we are uh, we are flooded by a, a a trend of at least over here poems that are embarrassingly sincere. Jonathan Farmer's talked about the sort of bruise tender sentimentality in a lot of uh, contemporary American poetry, and and that is really really tiresome and often just uh, deadly dull and humorless. And that, of course, like I'm. I'm I, I am I similarly find that frustrating and, and not interesting but I think I was surrounded when I was an undergrad by a lot of poetry that was that was playful or inventive to such a like uh, a limited end like it was it was playful and inventive and and like ex, ex, nothing but and it really went never went further than the phrase or the line and it never it was merely tried to be surprising line by line and nothing but and that is also incredibly tiresome yeah i think i, I have a theory about my distaste for language poetry and my distaste for movement poetry do you know what the movement is and the, i mean my only knowledge of the movement is that the the most famous member was larkin is that accurate yeah so larkin was the most famous and best member and okay. he wasn't really he wasn't like the aesthetic masthead of the movement. He didn't issue their dictate, their diktats. Sure. He was their best, their most, their best example. So it was a group of English poets in the 50s and 60s that reacted against the experimentation of modernism and said, we should not write poetry that's elusive and complex. We should try and make sense and use language as a communication tool. And my theory with language and poetry, my personal theory, which is quite modernist, is that poetry should use language as a means and an ends in itself. So like, so half the reason we write a poem, at least half the reason I write a poem is my, because I have such an indelible love and fascination of language. Yeah. But I think without language being, if you just write language as an end in itself, then you get language poetry, which is, you know, right. L, -E, L equals A equals U. No, L equals uh, U yeah. equals A. Which yeah, I, I find so odious <laughs> and so utterly boring because oh, it hasn't got the it hasn't got the, the language as means towards narrative or purpose or argument to sort of put all its invention to ha as that skeleton to hang its invention on. So it just turns into a, a sort of jumble of nothingness. And the statements it makes aren't really inventive because there's no narrative or plot or sort of discursive argument that would cause sort of a flare of brilliance or sort of a flare of articulation to occur. So it all, it just becomes sort of a dead lump of non sequitur. Yeah. I also find the movement's ethos as just language as communication and not an end in itself as 
creating a poetry that I just find deeply, deeply uninteresting and, and just deeply, deeply boring, or at least deeply, in some sense, a poetry that just, I find I'm just incredibly dissatisfied with. So I've sort, I've sort of sit on sort of the, the very prickly and barbed wire fence of the poetry landscape and sort of. Yeah, it's funny because I, sort of I think, I don't, maybe I, I have been surprised by some of the comments I've heard from Brits about the movement because I think I, I mean, you're right. I, I don't think, I certainly don't think of Larkin as being, you know, essentially a poet of linguistic invention, but I also don't think of his poems as being totally translatable. I mean, I think, I actually think no, of them as being like quite finely tuned to, to tone and to sound and they're, I mean, they're funny and they're, oh, they, totally. in, in ways that are like, you can't do that with mere plotting denotation, right? No, no, you can't do that. Yeah. And the, the, the million petaled flower of being here, yeah, yeah, the yeah. last lines of, is it on on old men? I can't remember the exact name of the uh, poem. But that's uh, old, the the old fools. Yeah, yeah. old fools. Yeah, that's it. The yeah. million the million petaled flower of being here is basically unparaphrasable, and it's right. brilliant. Yeah. And I, so I don't. I I have a weird. Yeah, I have a weird distaste for Larkin that I can't completely rationalize. Sure. But yeah, yeah, I do yeah. think. But I think maybe maybe it's not even Larkin's poetry in itself, but Lark, some of the things Larkin has said or made aesthetic statements that really rile me. Like his right. comments about, um, do you know, have you heard his comments about the Myth Kitty? Uh, when no, I have not. I mean, I, I've heard almost none of his comments outside his poems. My, my understanding is that he was a pretty awful person outside of his poems. <laughs> he was, yes, he probably was. As a critic, he once made a comment about, I think he was in an, in an anthology of sort of, 1950s poems which was really a sort of hidden manifesto for the movement and he says about the myth kitty that modernist poets are treating poetry as a sort of as a as they're sitting around a table and there's a kitty do you know so a kitty in english speakers in sort of old or like uh, like the, the pot in when you, a game of cards yeah, like you, something you hold in common yes so he's saying that poets are sitting around a table and there's a big pot of mythology and allusion to other poets and they're dragging stuff out and throwing it in them in their poems and he says i do not want poets to write like this they sound like and like, they sound like undergraduates who just want to be pleased who want to please other people and who just want to be like seen as clever by throwing in allusions to sort of this right. popular mythos yeah so yeah. And I, I don't agree with that at all but no. i can say i I, I feel like he's railing against sad poetry, but right. has brought that one to everyone. Oh yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, so much of the literature I love draws heavily on myth, and and I mean, I also think like all of like any representation of myth you can find, no matter how far you go back, that is also dipping into the myth kitty, right? There, like, it's it it is it you, it's like um like sourdough bread, like there's no original form of it. It's always, it's always dipping in and reworking and re-articulating. Re, re so no, I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm very much with you there. My suspicion, as you said, is that he, there is a, there's some unspoken set of references or assumptions that he's working from that, so that he is, he is uh, dismissing something there that is, that is no longer in the room when, when we come to those comments. Yeah. Or yeah, that, or that he means something that we're not looking at when we hear those comments. 
Although I do think there is a slight ghost of Elliot hovering over it. I do not think. I think he he has. Oh, like he's just, he's 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 taken a crack at Elliot as well. You think? Yeah. 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 Could I just ask you a quick question? Please. Yeah. I, I'm sure I read somewhere a few years ago an interesting article that said for American poetry and American poets, they have a much less deep sort of history of poetry to draw on. So they go when they're taught in school, the earliest poets, American poets, they get are sort of Whitman and Dickinson. And then most of the poets of the 20th century, uh, most of the American poets of the 20th century are given to them. So I was wondering, so what was your experience in school of poetry? And like, what, what century was most of the poetry from? Uh, oh, I mean, it, that I would that we had read more Whitman and Dickinson. I read much more deeply and richly in high school. I went to a little, a little uh -huh. hippie, a little hippie high school. I don't know if y'all have hippies there, but no, in college, I, I wasn't an English major. So, I mean, drama is very different from English in that apart from like taking a drama history course or two, you're not really, you, you're so, far less are you studying what has been done before than you are studying like a practice like how to do how to put on a good show basically is most yeah. of what you would have studying, say yeah you're studying um, theory and practicality practicality without sort of personal right things. whereas in whereas in english you're mostly studying you know everything that has been written and what's been written about what's been written i i was not an english major so i did take a lot of creative writing classes uh which i mean we not only did we not read uh people who wrote, who lived before the 19th century we i mean almost everybody we read was like both alive and like relatively young i mean we, we read like we read like the books mostly of like you know 30 or 40 somethings uh i mean it was really unbelievably limited and i mean really sort of uh, disgraceful in retrospect i, I mean it's it's part of what like i I, I, yeah, it's part of what made me very cynical about. I mean, I think I think it's different. Like Brian went to Columbia, and they have a great books program, and they're they're very good about trying actually at least to expose you to things that uh, that that were written quite a long time ago. But no, I mean, I think I think that characterization is very accurate. I I would even say that 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 most. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think you're lucky if the well goes as deep as Whitman and Dickinson, uh -huh. with most American poets, I would say. Yeah. That's interesting because I think, in, especially in uh, England, you get you probably get three or four poets from the 20th and 21st century, and then most of the poets are 19th. At GCSE, there was probably quite a few 19th century poets and a few 20th and 21st century poets. And at A level, which is slightly higher level, you'd probably go back to the we went back to the metaphysicals and uh, Marvel and Dunn. So. We saw, yeah, we had, we, I, in the English education system, we have a slightly broader, diverse, sort of more historical pool of knowledge. It's, it's interesting to hear your opinion. It's interesting to hear how you disliked, or at least how you felt slightly underdone by that, in contempt by sort of your, con the contemporaneity of the poets you've got. I mean, and we, I read, we read some poets who are alive and that I, I like, and I still like, but, uh, yeah. no, I mean, it was a terrible education in poetry. I mean, again, it, it, if you were a proper English major, you, you got a different kind of exposure, but, but yeah. I think most poets, you know, are most American poets are academic poets of one type or another, fewer and fewer of them are tenure track, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, the, in creative writing poetry circles, 
the the well is a fucking puddle. It's terrible. Mm. Uh, yeah. So no, I, I yeah, I, I don't. I'm I am. Uh, I probably have unrealistically sunny expectations about British poets in contrast to to uh, you know American poets. But but I, I think at least some of that is well founded. Yeah, I think I think you've got. I think expecting a British poet to maybe name their influences and have a few poets among them who hadn't lived for a few hundred years is probably a good a good expectation. <laughs> I, I personally just, I don't feel that I have really received yet an education in poetry from any institution. I don't think my school, uh, the English school system does not teach poetry well. I don't, I don't know how similar it is to the American, but there is sort of a focus on analysis. I think I've thought, I think I've taught myself poetry. That was my conversation with Cameron Clark. Uh, you can find Cameron, I think, mostly on Erratosphere. Uh, please, uh, please do go say hi to him there. I will put a link in the show notes to something, some, some, something Cameron-oriented or other. And uh, I, I hope to get him back on the show again sometime soon. You can reach me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com and on Twitter at Slee Ricketts. Please do go on Twitter and send a message to the the rotating cast of Slee Ricketts characters managing that account. Thank you all for listening. With any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.